Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Women should not be dying just trying to have babies. But the statistics tell a frightening story. Black women are significantly more likely to die during childbirth than white women. There's like the common misconception that comes up that black people don't feel the same type of pain as white folks, which just is absurd and completely not true. A government official said that a breakdown in an atomic power plant in Pennsylvania today is probably the worst nuclear reactor accident to date. As the planet continues to heat up, many are taking another look at a controversial source of energy. Right after um, Three Mile Island and Chernobyl, kind of the, you know, the world took a pause trying to figure out you know, what was going on. But more recently, environmental groups have come out and said that nuclear has to be part of the solution because the climate change challenges that we face are far too great. Good evening. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Michelle San Miguel. Pamela Watts is off this week. Pregnancy and birth can be part of life's most meaningful moments, but it can also have serious health consequences, complications, and sometimes even death. And the problems affect some groups more than others, with racial minorities facing disproportionate risk. Our first story tonight takes a look at a movement in Rhode Island working to help expecting women with the aid of doulas. Doulas are non-medical birthing professionals who offer support to pregnant women before, during, and after birth. Many believe they can help improve the outcomes for mothers and babies. As we first reported in April, there's a growing movement to make it easier for women to access their services. I wanted to make sure that I was gonna be cared for. You are growing life inside of you and bringing life um, onto this earth. And so I really wanted to be treated um, with dignity and with care. I love that you're trying to move those feet. Yeah, Carmen Pierre Connell has always known she wanted to be a mom. When she found yeah. out she was pregnant last year, oh, she decided to give birth at home. She says she was scared to have her baby girl at a hospital. I did not have faith in our healthcare system that I would receive that kind of care throughout my pregnancy and during my birth. I love you. While Pierre Canal was pregnant with her daughter Leah, she hired a woman who helped her work through her anxiety during pregnancy and labor. During the, the actual birth, uh, the comfort measures that she provided from the moment she walked into the home um, all the way through the time the baby arrived, um, I just, you know, was quite amazing. It's very emotional work. Like, it's a very vulnerable time in people's lives. I feel that way about this work with every family that I, that I come to. Felicia Love was the woman that Pierre Connell hired. She is a doula. In fact, she's the co-president of Doulas of Rhode Island and knows all too well many people have never heard of her profession. The doula is a, a non-medical support person. So they're, they're not a midwife, they're not a nurse. They are a trained professional that will serve a birthing person throughout pregnancy, labor, 
postpartum, what they do is they will um, give educational support, they'll give spiritual, emotional support, um, help provide evidence, help to um, just like work through any fears the person might be having. Felicia Love was inspired to become a doula after having her first child at 17 years old. At the time, she was in foster care. I went to all my appointments by myself, and you know, when I had questions, I, I didn't really have anywhere to turn. So when it came time for me to go into labor, I had to have my, my, my labor induced. It was kind of traumatic. I went through a surgery, an emergency surgery afterwards, and then I had to leave my son in the hospital um, for, for a week-long NICU stay. <laughs> she says that experience affected her self-esteem as a new mom. When she got pregnant again 16 years later, she knew she wanted to have a doula, but she couldn't afford one. Then she met a doula who agreed to work with her for free. She helped me like clear any fears that I had from the last pregnancy. When I went into labor, she was there and I, I felt so confident. I was able to give birth to this like beautiful, nine and a half pound baby with no epidural and I was so proud and I was so like I just felt so fulfilled and so happy and I knew that I wanted to give that to other people. In her five years working as a doula, Love has seen firsthand that not all expectant mothers are treated the same. Oftentimes people's pain isn't recognized. Um, there's like the common misconception that comes up that black people don't feel the same type of pain as white folks, which just is absurd and completely not true. But we do see that often that, that people are just not being listened to. Research shows that historically, healthcare providers tend to dismiss the pain of women in general more than they do men's because of gender bias, leading to patients being misdiagnosed. The situation is worse for women of color According to the Rhode Island Department of Health, black women are 42% more likely to experience a severe complication during delivery than white women. We know that overall, the United States is failing horribly at addressing maternal mortality in communities of color. And Didi Amaka Amuta Anukaga is an associate professor at Tufts University and specializes in maternal and child health. The research shows that women that have had a doula are less likely to have C-section, report greater satisfaction with their labor and delivery, um, report fewer complications, and are more likely to initiate and sustain breastfeeding. And so we know that the role of doulas as members of the care team for the woman are tremendously beneficial. She says many times black women don't have the social support they need in the hospital, which can lead to unnecessary surgeries. And so if a provider's shift is changing, or if the provider is frustrated because the labor is not progressing, we oftentimes see medically unnecessary C-section as a way to just get the job done. And a doula can really intervene and question whether decisions that are being made on behalf of the woman who is in active labor are medically necessary. For Rhode Island State Representative Marcia Wranglin Vassal, reproductive health is deeply personal. Her life drastically changed 25 years ago after she gave birth to her twin boys. Five days after the twins were born, I had what I later found out to be um, a subarachnoid hemorrhage on the right parietal area of my brain. 
I remember having the most gigantic headache that anyone could ever have. In fact, it was so excruciating that I remember opening the freezer door and sticking my head in it just to relieve the pain. She had a headache for five days before Wranglin Vassal went to the hospital. She was then diagnosed with a brain hemorrhage that could have killed her. Her survival prompted her to begin doing research on black maternal health, and she quickly found that her experience wasn't an anomaly. She believed if she had a doula, they would have recognized she needed to go to the hospital sooner. Wranglin Vassal first introduced a doula bill in 2019, a few years after she took office. The current legislation would require that private insurance providers and Medicaid cover at least $850 in doula services during pregnancy and up to one year postpartum. Women should not be dying just trying to have babies. No one should be dying from a birthing experience. But for the last two years, Wranglin Vassal and other supporters of the bill have hit roadblocks, largely from the insurance industry, which has argued the bill would lead to higher premiums. Educating people about the role of a doula has taken time, too. The legislation would also be a big expense for the state. Another barrier from my vantage point is the state not wanting to pony up, for want of a better word or phrase, the $34 million, right, to put this in the budget. Mm, I like the way that one looks, too. Yeah. When Pierre Connell called her insurance provider to find out if doula services were covered, she was surprised at what she heard. The person that answered the phone was like, I'm sorry, a what? And I was like, a doula. And she's like, I don't know what that is. Once she explained what a doula is, she was told the expense would not be reimbursed. What pushback do you hear about the doula bill and how do you respond to that? The healthcare system is a profit-based system. And I think providers, nurses, the system overall sees doulas as kind of ancillary. Quetia Osorio has been a doula for six years and has helped with the births of more than 30 babies. She says she's seen firsthand how black clients are treated differently from white clients in the maternity ward. It's not just black women going to the hospital and they're treated like trash. That's not what it is. You know, it's very, it's passive aggressive. It's microaggressions. It's, um, oh, is that the baby daddy instead of is that your husband or your partner? You know, very small nuances, um, questions, you know, repeated questions about drug use is, is a lot of assumptions sometimes. And Osorio says while her white clients worry about having dim lights and aromatherapy, her black clients all too often have to worry about survival. My client doesn't want to die. That's it. She doesn't want to die. She wants to come home with her baby. They're not asking for a lot. This is not just an issue of socioeconomics. The mortality rate for black women with at least a college degree was five times as high as white women with a similar education. Black women also suffer more complications during delivery. Amuta Anukaga says having a doula present has been shown to reduce those complications. 
But, she points out, the research is ongoing about whether doulas go so far as to lower the maternal and infant mortality rates. I will say that I and others across the country are studying that very relationship. So I was just recently funded by NIH, the National Institute of Health, um, on a five-year, multi-million dollar grant to look at the role of doulas in addressing maternal mortality. The CDC finds that about 60% of pregnancy-related deaths are preventable. Take a look at California, which has been lauded as a success story. It saw its maternal mortality decline by 55% between 2006 to 2013, while the national maternal mortality rate continued to rise. A statewide collaborative investigated the common causes of maternal death, like preeclampsia, hemorrhages, and sepsis. Then hospitals adopted new protocols to be more proactive about spotting and treating these complications. Pierre Connell didn't have any complications during her delivery. Still, she's glad she spent about $1,000 to have a doula and that she could afford one. Can you grab mommy's finger? <gasps> Look how you're grabbing my thumb. She's soaking in the many firsts that come with being a new mom. It's not lost on her how many other black women weren't able to experience that joy. I look at my child every day and I just feel so blessed and just so grateful that I get to be a part of her life. So I just feel really, really, really blessed. Representative Wranglin Vassal says she also feels blessed and is grateful that she survived, but often thinks about those who did not. So this bill is very personal to me. It's personal because I get to see my twins right now, and they're 25. I get to hold my grandson, Elias. I call him my sweet little brown-faced boy. And I keep thinking, oh my God, I almost miss this. I almost miss seeing Elias. And so this bill, is for all the moms who did not get to see their babies. Last August, the state passed legislation that makes doula services eligible for reimbursement through private insurance plans. The state also extended Medicaid coverage for those services. Next, we turn to a new United Nations climate change report. Scientists now believe that if greenhouse gas emissions are not reduced quickly, they could soon overwhelm the ability of both humans and nature to adapt. Even if the Earth's temperatures rise just a few more tenths of a degree than they are now, the study warns that today's children, many of whom will still be alive in the year 2100, will experience four times more floods, storms, droughts, and heat waves. If the Earth gets even warmer, it will be much worse. Harrowing projections like this are prompting many, including environmentalists, to take a second look at an energy source that is often associated with catastrophe and disaster. As part of our continuing Green Seeker series, contributing reporter John Smith explains. So the word nuclear tends to make people uncomfortable because I think a lot of people just don't know about it. So the fear of the unknown makes people un uneasy. Caitlin Ricola is a senior staff counsel at the Nuclear Energy Institute. Back in 2013, fresh out of Roger Williams Law School, she moved to Washington, D.C. and began searching for work. I ended up 
connecting with some people at the Nuclear Energy Institute and we just kind of hit it off. It was one of those serendipitous things and I thought, let's give it a try. And from there, I've learned a ton about nuclear energy, the commercial power sector, clean energy. And that education, she says, has also helped her become an advocate, joining several groups who promote the use of nuclear energy, including the organization known as Women in Nuclear. One of the core, I guess, functions or um, roles that we play are going into schools and providing lessons on, um, on nuclear technology. Ricola is also part of Mothers for Nuclear, a group of moms across the country that have fought against the closures of nuclear plants. For Ricola, an issue like climate change is personal. I have two kids. Um, Emma is going to be three in December, and I just had a four-month-old in June. His name is Wyatt. What are we doing with the trucks? A report had come out from the UN about, you know, that we had just reached a new troubling milestone in climate change. And I started to get really anxious about what my children's future is going to be. That anxiety became a little overwhelming. It was why I became even more passionate about advocating for nuclear. But getting most people on board with the idea that nuclear energy might be better for the environment has been an uphill battle mainly because of two defining nuclear incidents. The first began at 4 a.m. on March 28, 1979. It was the first step in a nuclear nightmare. As far as we know, at this hour, no worse than that. But a government official said that a breakdown in an atomic power plant in Pennsylvania today is probably the worst nuclear reactor accident to date. The accident occurred here at the Three Mile Island nuclear power plant a dozen miles south of Harrisburg. Ultimately, half the core of one of Three Mile Island's reactors melted down. Less than 10 years later, in April of 1986, disaster struck again at a nuclear plant nearly 5,000 miles from Pennsylvania. The danger may be escalating. It's an atomic fire and the Soviets can't contain it. Thousands may already have died or been seriously contaminated. Both accidents fed to the rise of the anti-nuclear movement. But in recent years, as this Union of Concerned Scientists video illustrates, the planet is heating up at a faster rate than many thought possible. As if 2020 wasn't already considered one of the darkest years in recent history, it was also the hottest year on record. Actually, the 10 warmest years ever have all occurred since 2005. This trend is not likely to change anytime soon. More frequent heat extremes are already having real implications for people in the United States right now, and people who work outdoors are particularly at risk. Right after um, Three Mile Island and Chernobyl, kind of the, you know, the world took a pause, trying to figure out, you know, what was going on. But more recently, environmental groups have come out and said that nuclear has to be part of the solution because the climate change challenges that we face are far too great. Our position is, a very neutral one. Dr. Ed Lyman is the director of nuclear power safety at the Union for Concerned Scientists in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We've never taken a position pro or anti-nuclear, uh, but we do believe that nuclear power has unique safety and security risks and that those have to be uh, give, uh, given the fullest attention if, we're, if nuclear power is going to play a role in, in mitigating climate change in the future. 
Many of those risks relate to the aging fleet of plants. Originally licensed for 40 years, many have already received a 20-year license extension, with some even beginning to apply for an additional 20 years. And that raises the possibility that in certain types of accidents, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, they really need uh, very high assurance that those kinds of systems are going to function even as they age and, and deteriorate. Last summer, we visited the Millstone Nuclear Power Plant in Waterford, Connecticut. It's here in this mock control room that operators train to run a real nuclear reactor. Uh, we've actually measured down to the millimeter um, to make sure that, that things that are in the control room are in the exact same location as they are in here. Ken Holt works for the owners and operators of the plant, Dominion Energy. There's no surprise he lands on the side of nuclear power being the key to a carbon-free source of energy. Right now, Millstone represents 95% of the carbon-free energy generated in Connecticut. That's nearly half of the state's electricity needs coming from one source. But as nuclear plants around the country get older and more expensive to build new ones, the future, Holt says, is grim. If Millstone goes away, it's not a solar farm that's going to be built to replace it. It's not wind power that's going to replace it. It's going to be natural gas. So you're, you're going to take a zero carbon resource off the grid and replace it with a carbon resource. And that just makes your, your job that much harder in, in reducing uh, carbon in the atmosphere. Still, Holt says his company's goal is to be net carbon zero by 2050. So we are, are looking at how we can reduce our carbon impact on, on the environment or uh, how we can mitigate it. Because of how dependent the area is on millstone to generate a tremendous amount of its energy. Do you find that it's often easier in that license renewal process because of the understanding that there's nothing else to replace it? So the, the NRC process does not look at need at all. The NRC process is focused solely on safety. If the NRC does not think that it would be safe to operate the unit for another 20 years, they will not allow the license. Created in 1974, the NRC, or Nuclear Regulatory Commission, is an independent government agency responsible for licensing and regulating civilian use of radioactive materials. Is the NRC doing enough, in your perspective, to regulate the uh, operations of aging nuclear plants? We, we don't think so. One problem that we're facing now is that this aging population of plants is uh, facing a dire economic pressure in many parts of the country because of the low prices of alternatives, natural gas. So plants are shutting down and there's enormous pressure on those plants to cut costs. And where do you cut costs in things like maintenance and inspections and repairs and all the things you need to do uh, to make sure that plan is in good working order. And Lyman says the NRC is not immune to industry influence. Unfortunately, it's too susceptible um, to that kind of pressure. So I don't um, believe that the agency has done enough to safeguard uh, the safety and security of these plants as they age. So then what about looking into the future in terms of growth for specifically the nuclear energy industry? Uh, are you seeing that there is the potential for growth or has it seemed to have stagnated? You know, there, I would say the, the potential for, for units like Millstone, a, a new 1,000 megawatt big uh, generating station, are, are probably slim. 
I, that, that there's not great chances of something that big being built again. But there is uh, the potential for small module reactors. These are reactors that produce about a fifth of the power, but are about a tenth of the size. A recent startup co-founded by Bill Gates called Terra Power is planning to do just that by building a smaller 345-megawatt plant in Wyoming by 2028. The plant will use state-of-the-art technologies designed to drastically mitigate the safety issues of the past. But Dr. Lyman says that while the environmental community is more broadly looking to nuclear energy as one of the answers to climate change, the industry itself has been desperately trying to change their image for decades. The nuclear industry is uh maybe 30 years ago, realized that one selling point it had was that it's a low power source of electricity and they've, they've been uh, pushing that message uh, for decades, but it's only really become resonant in recent years. You know, of course there is merit to that, but you, again, you can't, you know, it's, it's a qualified argument. You know, you, uh, you don't necessarily need nuclear power to mitigate climate change. It's not, there's no imperative if there are alternatives that can do things better and, and more safe. Let's build. As some figure out a way to incorporate nuclear energy into its carbon-free future, there's one future on Caitlin Ricola's mind. And it has, you know, legitimately crossed my mind on whether I'm being responsible having children and having more children. And so I don't know what kind of future that they are going to have, but I feel like all I can do as a mom now is do my very best to try and help set that future up. But I think every parent in our generation is, is probably going to have it cross their mind of what, what am I bringing my children into. Finally tonight, we asked guest commentator Lila Alphonse to give us her thoughts on nuclear energy. As we wrestle with climate change, environmentalists are taking another look at nuclear power and wondering whether it could help us achieve our green energy goals. There are 55 nuclear power plants operating in the U.S. right now. They provide roughly 20% of the country's electricity supply, more than half of its low-carbon electricity. Relying more on nuclear power could be one way to increase the amount of electricity we generate without adding a lot to our carbon footprint. There is one nuclear reactor in the Ocean State at the University of Rhode Island. It's tiny, just two megawatts, and used for research. Compare that to the Millstone nuclear power plant in Connecticut, which we just saw in the report. It has a capacity of more than two gigawatts, more than a thousand times as much as the tiny Rhode Island reactor. But how green is it? That depends on which aspects you want to consider and which you're willing to ignore. While nuclear power does not generate pollution and greenhouse gases like fossil fuels do, mining uranium, which the reactors use as fuel, releases huge amounts of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and has a similar environmental impact to mining for coal. While it doesn't affect the water supplies the way fracking can, some nuclear power plants use an enormous amount of water in their cooling systems. According to local news reports, Millstone uses about 2 billion gallons of seawater daily, pulling cold water in and then discharging the heated water into the Long Island Sound. That's about as much water as the entire city of Warwick uses in a day. Besides air pollution, burning fossil fuels create solid waste, including ash, slag, and other particulate matter. Radioactive waste from nuclear power plants can become a major disaster if not properly contained. And when a plant is decommissioned, the potential for contamination, accidents, and long-term environmental and public health damage increases. Whether Rhode Islanders are for nuclear power or against it, 
it's kind of a moot point. Right now, Rhode Island has no nuclear power plants and gets 0% of its electricity from nuclear power sources. But it's something to consider as we look for ways to minimize the environmental impact of generating the energy we all use. Our thanks to Lila Alphonse. That's our broadcast this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm Michelle San Miguel. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, you can visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly or listen to our podcast available on all your favorite audio streaming platforms. Good night.